Hello, and welcome to our quarterly podcast on financial transaction and transfer pricing. During this podcast, we have an informal discussion with specialists of our P2C network. And today we will discuss the impact of sustainable financing and ESG in general on intercompany financing. And I'm pleased to propose our panel of today. So we have Ronan Finn from PRC Ireland. We have Michel van der Breggen and Ray Yuan of PRC Netherlands. And I'm David Adur of PRC Belgium. Ronan, in a previous podcast, you talked about putting transfer pricing into ESG. Could you refresh our memories uh, what ESG is about, uh, but especially how it interacts with transfer pricing? Absolutely. Thanks, David. Um, well, firstly, you know, ESG is a set of criteria that relates to environmental, social and governance metrics that considers how a company performs for the environment, its stakeholders and communities. And over the last couple of years, I think we've, we've heard a lot about ESG. We've seen a rapid transition away from a business environment that would focus primarily on business outcomes to now where ESG is used to maintain that social contract. You know, and the benefits of adopting the approach are clear. You know, research would show that 90% of companies with a clear purpose outperform industry averages in growth and profitability. Um, and investors, consumers, and policymakers are increasingly placing higher expectation on businesses to do more to contribute to the society's shared endeavors. So the rise of ESG also provides businesses with an opportunity for value creation. But this also comes with risks. Um, there's a huge increase in ESG regulations globally. And we're seeing a substantial increase in the use of comparative ratings for companies uh, based on reporting and perceptions of environmental, social and, and governance performance. So, you know, failure to act on ESG can result in a, a loss of trade due to consumer preferences. It can impact the cost of capital, which you might talk about later, and access to capital in the first place. And missed opportunities to capture market growth, including even the inability to um, attract talent. So. A couple of things I mentioned there, David, was, you know, value creation and risk. And, and I think that would sound very familiar to all of us in, in transfer pricing. And you referenced there in the podcast um, we did a while back, putting the TP into ESG. I would have highlighted four areas um, that TP would be particularly relevant when considering ESG. And they are around the value or supply chains around deals, tax transparency and financial transactions. And, you know, regarding financial transactions, you know, ESG is increasingly a key factor in financing. And so regulatory requirements and societal demand, you know, initially prompting institutional investors to incorporate ESG into their investment decisions. But this now has led to, you know, an increased focus on sustainable financial instruments, period. Okay. So you mentioned that the cost of capital and access to capital uh, will or might be influenced by ESG. So we'll certainly come back on, on that one. Now, where does sustainable finance fit under the broader ESG umbrella? Ronan, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I'd probably start there first with what is sustainable development. I would define it as development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And capital plays a critical role in sustainable development. So sustainable financing promotes the achievement of sustainable development goals by taking into account ESG considerations. And I'd say there's there's probably no standard definition for sustainable finance, but it typically would have you know a number of, of key features. Normally would have a direct link to long-term investments in sustainable economic activities or non-financial key performance indicators, you know, aimed at reducing the pressure on the environment and supporting social and governance objectives. 
Um, compared to traditional capital flows, it has additional features such as risk management activities and financial processes, including disclosures, valuations, and oversights. So I would say compared to traditional finance, um, sustainable finance takes into account not only the traditional parameters like risk return, but also ESG objectives in, in combining with financial returns. You know, sustainable financing would play an important role in conveying the policy objectives of governments and corporates as it typically addresses objectives such as you know reorienting investment flows towards more sustainable technologies and businesses as well as eco or social friendly resources it would be contributing to environment and economic changes low carbon economy climate uh, resilience and circular economy etc and supporting growth in an overall in a sustainable way so i'd say the key objective of sustainable finance and naturally give rise to a variety of sustainable financial instruments available in the market, such as we'll talk maybe later about green bonds, sustainability linked bonds and loans and social impact bonds. And moreover, there are many variations of such financial instruments and we're seeing more and more of those being developed over, over the coming months and years, I think. Okay, so uh, sustainable finance is not one instrument, but it's a, a whole a bunch of instruments with typical features and some key objectives that you may not find in traditional financing. So thank you for that, uh, Ronan. Uh, Ray, we go to you. Um, what are the recent developments that we have seen in the capital markets around sustainable financing? Is it hot? How is the financial sector looking at this and, and so forth? Yes, thanks, David. Um, obviously, the financial sector has a key role to play in supporting the urgent transition to a sustainable economy, especially after the 26 United Nations Climate Change Conference hosted in Glasgow, UK last year, or well known as the COP26, you see that governments and regulators around the world are stepping up efforts to integrate sustainability into regulation. These are all impacting the financial transactions, financial products, business, and entire value chains. And in a nutshell, 2022, in many ways, is the year that sustainable finance is, is uh, expected to become truly mainstream. And this is also reflected in the debt capital market, for instance. The full-year sustainable finance bond issuance surpassed $1 trillion for the first time in 2021. This is a 45% increase compared to 2020. And $1 trillion accounted for 10% of the overall debt capital market activity in 2021. And if we look at the most recent data, the first quarter of 2022 marks the fifth consecutive quarter to surpass $200 billion of sustainable finance bond issuance with over 400 issuers. Regarding the syndicated loans, the sustainable lending totaled almost $717 billion in 2021, and this is more than tripling the level of 2020. So based on all these, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that sustainable wave in the capital market uh, is unstoppable and the strong investors interest remains a reality in 2022 even with headwinds of rising interest rates inflation and geopolitical tensions okay so these are staggering numbers that you, you mentioned uh, now worldwide uh, europe is typically considered as a front runner in terms of esg ambitions like uh, the eu fit for 55 package this is also the case for sustainable financing right Yes, absolutely. Um, Europe can certainly be considered a front runner in terms of ESG and uh, sustainable finance. 
You can also see that in the capital market performance, for instance, Europe has been the largest regional market for sustainable finance bonds. And in 2021, the European issuers accounted for 54% of the market share for sustainable finance bonds issuance. And this percentage remained 50% at the first quarter of 2022. And regarding syndicated loans, European borrowers also accounted for 43% of the overall sustainable lending during 2021. Also, the European Union has been a global champion in the sustainable finance policy agenda. We saw this ambition formally kicked off with the EU's first action plan in sustainable finance in 2018, which laid the foundation for many key regulative initiatives such as EU taxonomy and uh, SFDR, so the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, and that ambition continues. With the implementation of these key EU regulations now begun, you can also see that the market participants are also fighting with the practical challenges that is behind these efforts in Europe and also beyond. I think it's fair to say that Europe is doing a good job of leading by example. And the fact that Europe is going fast and intends to go far certainly gives inspiration to other territories. Okay, thanks, uh, Ray, for sketching uh, sketching out this. Uh, now, with the uh, yeah, unstoppable involvement of sustainable finance in the capital markets, there is also uh, some consequences on multinationals intercompany financing. Michelle, if we go to you, uh, what are the key questions that you need to pay attention uh, on from a transfer pricing perspective? Thanks, David. So while the sustainable finance market will indeed likely keep the momentum, will further mature and may even become uh, more mainstream in the coming years. It is indeed important for companies to start reflecting on the transfer pricing consequences of this new reality. So some of the questions to be carefully considered are, for instance, whether ESG KPIs and also ESG pricing ratios should be included in intercompany financing loans. With external debt, it becomes increasingly common that there are ESG KPIs included in the agreements. It is also more and more the case that Depending on an improvement or a deterioration of these ESA KPIs, there are margin step-ups or step-downs during the lifetime of the debt. This is, of course, to give the debt issuer the incentive to really address the ESG challenges it faces and to drive sustainable development. We see that these KPIs are typically set against the overall group performance. But how does this play out when it comes to intercompany loans issued within a group especially for the ones that are directly linked to external ESG funding. And to me, this is one of the most challenging questions if you talk about sustainable financing and transfer pricing. And I'm actually not quite sure if there is one clear-cut answer to it. Because to be able to properly address this question, you need to first understand, for instance, if and how an intercompany loan is connected to the company's actual ESG investments, and whether the related party borrower actually has control over the relevant easy decisions within a group or not. Because if not, how, from a transfer pricing perspective, can you penalize or reward the borrower for risk which it does not control? And besides, we should also not overlook the fact that there may be less information asymmetry between entities in an intercompany context. And therefore, an intercompany lender may be less likely to seek the same kind of action as an independent lender in the event of a covenant breach. But is this in itself a darn length? 
And to what extent do we need to consider the performance of the group as a whole on its ESG KPIs as some sort of synergy effect, positive or negative, including also uh, the potential adverse costs of not meeting these KPIs? So I think all in all, this is certainly not easy, uh, but it is important for companies to start considering the potential impact on TP and also to develop a consistent policy around it. Yeah. And, and earlier this year, we published an article in IBFD's International Transfer Pricing Journal on this topic. So an interesting read for the listeners that want to go deeper into the topic. Michelle, a, a very down-to-earth question. Um, is there a link between sustainable financing and arms length interest rate and debt capacity levels? Yeah, that's an interesting question, uh, David. And uh, yes, I think there is. Uh, and as we all know, one of the advantages of funding debt with debt from a tax perspective is that interest expenses are, in principle, tax deductible. And of course, if a borrower's intercompany debt exceeds its arm's length borrowing capacity, it could jeopardize its interest deductibility because based on chapter 10 of the guidelines issued in February 2020, the debt may be fully or partly requalified into equity. And now the development in the sustainable finance market clearly shows a robust investor appetite for sustainable financing. And this may indicate and this is also what we see, for instance, in the renewable energy space, that ESG debt issuers have a greater choice of funding compared to conventional debt issuers. It could therefore also be the case that ESG debt issuers can obtain more funding with higher loan values as a consequence. So arguably, this could also mean that in certain intercompany debt cases, higher debt levels can be achieved. At the same time, ESG debt issuers also seem to get better pricing or more favorable terms from their lenders. Uh, one example is the well-known green bond issuer premium or greenium. So in essence, cheaper funding. And this needs to be considered too, and it will become increasingly important when benchmarking interest rates for intercompany loans. And so, so if a group is able to obtain such a greenium or similar benefits uh, on its external financing, should that benefits be allocated within the group? And, and if so, how? Yeah, and I think this, this kind of goes back to the point we uh, really discussed earlier. So to answer the question, the first step is to determine whether this greenium can be qualified as a group synergy effect. If the greenium is indeed a result of group synergy, then it needs to be further evaluated if the synergy effect is created by, let's say, deliberate concerted actions, as the OCD calls it, or if it's more an incidental benefit. In other words, is Greenium achieved due to the fact that specific group companies have made certain investments to support a strong ESG profile of the group? Um, and following the OCD guidelines, a deliberate concerted action uh, should be compensated, whereas if it's a mere consequence of a kind of an incident benefit or decisions taken at group level, it should not. Okay. Um, so, so more and more studies uh, show that the greenium does exist, and, and especially for euro-denominated bonds. So if it's proven that ESG debt is different than, I would say, uh, non-ESG debt or, or normal debt, how does it impact the pricing of intercompany loans? Well, as you know, when we price intercompany loans, we typically use a comparable uncontrolled transaction as a basis at the cup. Um, and there is a widespread existence of capital markets and availability of data via sources such as Bloomberg. So external CUPs are very often used. Uh, and indeed, as I just mentioned, when pricing intercompany sustainable financing transactions, ideally the comparable uncontrolled transaction we refer to should be comparable ESG debt. Now, if there's 
not sufficient uh, close comparables to be found, then we may want to apply a comparable adjustment whereby we take comparable conventional debt transaction as a starting point. But again, uh, the problem would be whether we can find sufficient market data to quantify and substantiate uh, the comparability adjustment we subsequently would need to make. But uh, with the rapid development in the sustainable finance area, um, I think this data issue will be uh, solved relatively quickly. Um, so yeah, that means uh, that we definitely need to start addressing this point also from a transfer pricing uh, perspective. When we talk about transfer pricing and uh, financial transactions, one thing that always comes back is a credit risk assessment. Ray, what is the link between ESG and, and this credit rating assessment? Thanks, David. Great question. Um, at first, we see that many companies with ESG embedded in their business strategies are being evaluated by third-party agencies who are specialized in ESG rating. And these ESG rating measures companies' ESG risk. For instance, how a company's ESG issues are posing material risk and putting the company's enterprise value at risk. And later, with investors' growing interest in sustainable finance, the mainstream credit rating agencies also join the party. So they're not only publishing papers to showcase that um, their approaches of introducing ESG factors into their traditional rating analysis, they're also racing to introduce new ESG measure offerings. For instance, in 2019, Fitch first introduced ESG uh, relevant scores across all asset classes, starting with over 1,500 non-financial corporate ratings and followed by financial institutions and sovereign issuers. In 2021, Moody's launched ESG issuer profile and credit impact scores, starting with 1,700 governments financial institutions, and corporate uh, across a wide range of sectors. And Moody's intended to publish ESG scores for thousands of more issuers in 2022. And this year, S&P also introduced S&P Global ESG scores. This data set is claimed to cover um, 8,000 companies already and have a data history dating back to 2013. So obviously, rating agencies sense the demand of measuring ESG impact on companies' credit ratings in a transparent, systematic, and standardized way. Okay, thanks for that. And I think it's also important to, to remind that an ESG rating and a credit rating is, is not the same. Uh, while an ESG rating is measuring the ESG profile of a, a group, a credit rating measures the risk of default so that the group will not be able to respect its financial commitments. So at first sight, an ESG rating has nothing to do with, with the credit rating, but as Ray mentioned, there is a clear interaction. So ESG can impact supply chains that then on its uh, turn impact credit risk. Uh, some groups might have difficulties to refinance their obligation to do their ESG profile, so also impact their, their credit risk. So two separate concepts, um, but uh, also closely linked. And with this, we come to the, the end of the podcast. And what I uh, retain from the discussion are three things. Um, firstly, you have many forms of sustainable financing. So it's, it's not a, a single concept, but we see that there's a steep increase of sustainable uh, financing on the market. Secondly, uh, while 
this market is still a work in progress. We already observed today the impact on financial markets. So we mentioned the greeniums, the, the larger debt capacity uh, impact and the like. So uh, this will likely further evolve in the next uh, coming years. And finally, uh, this triggers uh, various transfer pricing questions like uh, greenium pricing ratchets uh, on third party financing. Should we keep them century or reallocate them? Um, should you consider greeniums as a comparability adjustment in a, in a cap analysis? Is there a debt capacity impact? And, and finally, uh, the ESG criteria influencing also credit rating models. So with this, I want to thank our listeners to tuning in and uh, our speakers for sharing their insights. And I'm looking forward to our next podcast. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.